Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. How we doing? Go away for a week and you tear the place apart. So uh, thanks for... uh, you know, being patient, I don't know that we ever put it to a vote, but at some point we made the decision that uh, you're just going to be a part of the renovation as opposed to waiting till the end and then they'll come in this room and do everything. Uh, We just thought it'd be more fun to just kind of be a part of it. So here you are, you're in the middle of the construction project, so it's all good. I am working right now to arrange an open house uh, probably in the next few weeks so that uh, after the services, you'll be able to get a tour over there. I'm trying to make it a little safer so you don't, you know, fall through somewhere. Uh, but uh, so you can kind of be a part of that side of things as well. Uh, and so uh, just continue to pray and be faithful and uh, things are going well. So uh, let's think a little bit together. I want you to assume this morning that uh, each one of us are making something called thought soup. You do that, you know. There is a soup in your brain filled with your thoughts. And if I were to ask you to describe that soup to me, how would you describe it? Some of you have a really light, kind of brothy, consomme happening up there. I don't know any of you, but I assume there are some people like that. Some of you got some thick, Texas chili up there like sludge. <laughs> You're just trying to make your way through it and make the best of it. And the truth is, that's sort of how life is, that there's a lot of thoughts up there, there's a lot of, a lot of misunderstanding, and to add to it, very few of us get any ingredients in our thought soup that make it better. I mean, if you turn on the news, if you read something online, if you're on social media, there aren't many things that are going into your thought soup that you go, oh, that's a pleasant thought. I mean, maybe a picture of a puppy now and then, maybe there's some kitten doing something cute, but rarely are we getting any sort of thing that from sort of a actual making life make more sense perspective. Rarely do we get ingredients in our soup. And so we're going to think a little bit this morning about the problem of pain and suffering and what that's all about. And I'm not naive enough to think that in the next few minutes we're going to solve the problem. But my goal is to put some ingredients in your soup that need to be there. And they need to be there because they're true and they're biblical. We up for that? All right. There are eight ingredients So don't let that depress you because you should think of it this way. I need all the help I can get. Amen? All right. So why are we here? Why do we do this thing called church? Uh, Every year in the fall, I try to ask the team to put together a series that really explores that. And that's what we're doing. Uh, Be the difference. We're here to make a difference. Jesus said, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to be the light of the world. I want you to be the salt of the earth. I want you to go make a difference in the world. I want you, in fact, to bring the kingdom of God alive on earth so that what is happening here, his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've been in church my whole life. 
and I have lived around people my whole life who were just dying to die so that they could live. Anybody else know that? You know, like I, I grew up and I heard testimony. We used to have testimony time. Anybody grow up in a church where they had testimony time? Thank you. Oh, four of you. Okay, so let me just explain to you how church used to work. You go in the morning on Sunday morning. That's the big show. That's, that's a big league. Sunday night is a miniature Sunday morning. Wednesday night is a miniature Sunday night. And on Sunday night or Wednesday night, you might have testimony. You were going to have them on Wednesday night because the pastor hadn't really prepared all that much material. <laughs> but you might have them on Sunday night if he was just tired. And so people testified. And this is what they testified. Someday I'm going to die and it will be better. I mean, that's kind of an ironic thought, isn't it? That wasn't Jesus' vision. Jesus' vision was, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. I have come to see you create a community in which God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And what happens next, I think it'll be great. I just don't want to live for that. I want to make a difference now. And the question is, are we? So two weeks ago, Candace talked about the fact that we are to look around for who is our neighbor. We're to intervene in the lives of people in need. That's why we're here. That's what the church does. That's what it is supposed to do. We come together, we come empowered, we get equipped, and we pay attention because we're fed thought soup all the time. And that thought soup will cause us to turn internal and stop looking around. It'll cause us to, to close down instead of open up. And so we come to church to say, hey, we are looking for people who need a neighbor, and we're going to be those neighbors. Last week, Colton talked to us about what it means to, to look at life as if you're the host. <laughs> you know, you're the one opening the door and providing the nourishment and providing. You're the one looking for ways to serve. We're not, we're not looking for an equal share in this world and in this life. We're doing more than our part. We're the host and hostesses of the culture and the world. Because God has played host to us and poured out his grace on us and nourished us and forgiven us and loved us unconditionally. Now we're going to go visit that on the people we know. How are we doing? And then we are to be people who bring comfort to the world. We are people who bring comfort to those who are hurting. We are ambassadors of reconciliation as though God himself were making his appeal through us. And it's very difficult for us to offer comfort to others when we don't have much comfort ourselves. Amen. And so we're thinking a little bit about the problem of pain. And it turns out it's a problem. Suffering is a problem. Hard times are a problem. Tragedies are a problem. Sickness is a problem. You, you kind of have to be brain dead not to acknowledge that there are things going on in the world that are not fair, and they're not okay, and they're not just. Amen? This should be a real blessing so far. <laughs> we got to talk about it. we got to acknowledge it. Because we can't explain it all. Now, sometimes in the theology of the church, we've heard this. Because we do platitudes. Because we don't know what to do with pain, we give people platitudes. There's nothing better than saying to a person in pain, well, it must be God's will. Just so you know, that is not comforting. It's also infuriating. It's also misrepresentation of who God is. 
some people in the church, they get into this thing. You know, well, it's a, it's a cause and effect. If you lived right, then God will bless you. And if you mess up, then God will punish you. That's neat and clean, isn't it? You know, oh, you're going through something? That's because you messed up. That's on you. If you had more faith, you were a better Christian, you'd perform better. Then you wouldn't be going through this. That's a, I mean, that's tidy and neat. It's also not biblical. I mean, it's very difficult to look at the fate of the disciples in Jesus and apply that theology. <laughs> it didn't turn out that well in any earthly term for those folks. Amen? And so what do we do with this problem? How do we face it? In Acts 18, we're told this story. It is a story about the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul has been in Athens, and he's been speaking to the Areopagus, and he's given this uh, very beautiful soliloquy to these very wise gathering of the you know, scholars of Athens. And when he completes that story, he, we're told that he goes 65 miles south to the little city of Corinth. And, and, and he goes to the city of Corinth, and he remains 18 months where he plants the church at Corinth, the very metropolitan, cosmopolitan city, one of the most important cities in the ancient world. And he goes there to plant the church of Jesus Christ. And it thrives. It does very well in the first 18 months. And then he moves on. And as soon as he moves on, there's problems in the church. They divide. And they divide into two major groups. Half of the church is supporting the Apostle Paul and his teachings and what he came and did for them. And the other half have begun to follow what we call super apostles. And it comes down to this. There are apostles that came in after Paul. We call them apostles. They actually were just, you know, disciples. And they came in after Paul, and they looked better, and they talked better, and they dressed better, and they had more money than Paul, and they, they were wealthier than Paul, and they, they drove a better car than Paul, you know, all that stuff. And they began to logic it in their brains. They go, well, Paul came, and he, he actually had a side job. He was bivocational, and he didn't dress that well, and he didn't have a winsome personality necessarily, and, and these guys are, they're slick. And so half the church is going, I think if he were really God's servant, he'd look like that, not like that. And the church has divided. And because of that division, Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to say, I want you to go back to your first love. I want you to stop all this nonsense. And I want you to re-engage with the simplicity with which you first served Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, it doesn't really do a lot to bring the church back together. And so we're told that Paul pays a second visit. It's recorded for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He pays another visit and he goes face to face and he confronts the problems face to face. It's called the painful visit. And he doesn't make a lot of headway and there's a lot of tension and there's a lot of things going on. And, and so he pays the painful visit and then he leaves. And we're told now that he writes another letter. The letter has come to be known as the severe letter. Now, some scholars believe that it's contained within the context of 2 Corinthians, and sometime I'll make that argument with you and read it to you, and you can decide. Others think it's lost to us. But there is a letter he refers to in 2 Corinthians as a severe letter. And this letter brings repentance. They buy in. Between the painful visit and the severe letter... There is remorse, there's repentance. And so now Paul sits down and says, now that these folks have all sort of come together again, I want to write a letter to them and I want to teach them to be deep and mature 
and strong. And I want to cover some things that we couldn't talk about because we were in elementary school, but now we're moving on to grad school, and I'm going to talk about big, big, deep, hard stuff that he writes the letter of 2 Corinthians. In it, he addresses the problem of pain. He does that for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You've heard these words. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. And that's to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus... So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us. But life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore we speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with him to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that's reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Well, that's word soup, isn't it? (laughs) But Paul has had some experiences. And it's from those experiences that he writes these words. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed, but we are not in despair. And when he begins to talk about why, the rest of us are like, ah, we carry the dead, what about, da-da-da-da. In a couple verses, he's going to say this, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. Therefore, we fix our eyes not on what is seen. Listen, what is seen is temporary. But on what is unseen, because what is unseen is eternal. Some of what makes Paul talk like this is what happens in the Gospels. I want to read to you the story of Lazarus. It's a weird story. And I want you to pay close attention Because out of it, I think there are eight ingredients for your thought soup that you really need to include in your thought soup. And it's a weird little story. John is sharing with us some of these vivid, vivid details. Chapter 11, verse 4. I'm going to skip around a little bit here. John 11, 4. Everybody doing okay? This is a very live room, isn't it? I, I feel like I'm shouting. Uh, You can't sleep here. It's going to be really bad when the carpet comes back in and everything will be in here and it'll be all soft. I'll speak and you'll doze. It'll be great. Some of you are like, I'm dozing now. What are you talking about? When he heard this, that Lazarus was sick, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Jesus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. Is there a weirder verse in all of Scripture than that phrase? 
So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. And Jesus answered, aren't there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daylight will not stumble, for they see this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. It's a digression. Skipping to verse 14. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. But let's go to him. And then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let's also go with him, that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Skipping ahead to verse 30. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly he got, she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid them, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, "How see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord said, Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there'll be a bad odor because he's been there four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know, knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out in his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. There is a lot going on in this little story. The first thing I, I want to say, just kind of as an overarching piece for thought soup, is this. God does not play games with you or your life or the life of your loved ones. I'm going to let that lay there till you respond. God does, and some of you need to say it to yourself and to your story. God does not play games with my life and my circumstances and my story, nor does he play games with the lives and the circumstances of my loved ones. Because you could read this story and go, huh, there's some weird stuff going on here. Kind of makes you wonder what's in his mind, what's happening. And for us to stop for a moment and just to recognize that there's a lot happening and there's a lot of layers to this, but when it sort of starts to come together, it matters. Here's the first thought for your... Thought soup, number one, divine timing is different than my timing. Divine timing is different. I need to say it to myself a lot. I don't know how you feel, but this story affirms something that I experience, and that is, hey, God, I got an issue. Can you help me? And he sits down for days, weeks, months, years. I don't know what he does. Anybody else have that experience? (laughs) I mean, the appropriate thing to do is respond right now right now. In fact, if I was praying about it, it's because it's a crisis, because I don't pray about other stuff. (laughs) Sad, but it's an admission, isn't it? If it gets to the prayer list, it's bad. 
It's bad, bad. I don't like sit down and think about things that might happen. I got a lot to pray about that's happening right now. And I can just see that whole scenario where I pray and Jesus goes, oh, it's him again. <laughs> you know what? Put that at the bottom of the stack. If we get to it, we get to it. But I'm just going to sit down here and take a break. Makes my head hurt. Divine timing is not our timing. And in fact, Jesus is not doing nothing in these moments. We've already been told that there's some layers going on. There's a person that he loves that's suffering. Jerusalem is in play and the leadership there. There's an over foreshadowing of death. There's a whole lot of stuff. And what do you think Jesus is doing? Don't you imagine he's praying? I mean, what I wish is that when I pray, Jesus would just go, boom, you got it. But what I think is that the scripture teaches us that he intercedes to us, for us to the Father. Which brings me to the second ingredient for your thought soup. Divine intercession is real. What Jesus is doing in these two days is he's interceding for the life of Lazarus, but he's also interceding for the story. He's also interceding for the, for the good and the will of the Father for all of mankind. He's genuinely, in a personal way, interceding for the life of Lazarus. He's, he's praying to the Father about what needs to happen, what ought to happen, what God's will is, what he wants him to do next, how it's all going to fit together. He's not doing nothing. He's praying. Who would have thought that the Son of God needs to slow down and pray before he takes action? But he does. And in very vivid ways, he intercedes. And he intercedes for you, and he intercedes. In fact, we are told, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us, but one who was tempted in every way as we are tempted, yet was without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly before the throne of God, so that we might receive mercy in our time of need. He intercedes to us, to the Father, with groanings that cannot be uttered. We've got to have that in our thought suit. His timing is not my timing, but I know he's interceding for me. He's interceding for me right now and for my loved ones. And it might seem like he's playing with my story and my circumstances, but he's not. He's not. His timing is not my timing. And he intercedes for me in a very vivid and real way. Number three, divine wisdom is comprehensive. He's not just praying about Lazarus. He's praying about everything, all the time, all at once. Amen? I mean, he's praying about Lazarus, and he's praying about going to Jerusalem, and he's praying about the well-being of his disciples, and he's praying about the overall plan of salvation, and he's praying about God the Father, and he's praying about the prophetic story, and he's praying about the creation of the world, and he's praying about the end times, and he's praying about, uh, he's praying about all of it all the time because divine wisdom is comprehensive, and it doesn't favor one person over another. Amen? We had college football yesterday. Don't you love it when you have college football and after there's an interview and somebody says, well, God helped us win. I don't know if he did. Because if he helped you win, he made them lose. I don't think that's good theology. Amen? Unless you're winning. Right? Because God doesn't benefit one person to the detriment of someone else, does he? Because divine wisdom is comprehensive. He takes care of everything all at once, all the time. 
I, I don't know about you, but you know, the reality is if God said to me, Dave Roberts, you have the power to get anything. You can have any prayer answered. You know, just tell me what you want. You think I would trust myself to make that decision? Amen? Okay. Some of you are like, well, I, well. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being God for five minutes, you know. I'd fix some things, and then I'd probably smite a couple people. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the weight of the responsibility, and God, his wisdom is comprehensive. He's thinking about everybody all at once, not just us and our tribe and our people and our stuff, but every single human being on the face of the planet He comprehensively is working all things together for good. And we trust in this comprehensive plan of God. Number four, divine guidance is short term. This needs to be in your thought soup. The disciples say, well, I don't know if you ought to go to Jerusalem because, you know, they tried to stone you the last time you were there. And I'm pretty sure it's not going to go well this time. And Jesus gives this story about, well, people walk around the daytime and then they don't stumble. But if they walk around at night, they fall down. And we're all kind of like, okay. And what he is saying to them is this. It's really not your business to worry about that. I'm not going to tell you the whole plan. I'll just tell you what we're going to do next. Don't you hate that? Because God and I would get along so much better if he would just explain it all to me. Can you tell me the beginning, the middle, and the end? And I want to reserve the right to edit the end. Is this just my prayer life or do any of you experience this? I'll tell you how to give me peace. Fix it. Yeah, just fix it. Just fix it. Fix it all. And you know what he says? I'm working on everything all the time, all at once. My intercession is real. My timing is not your timing. And just so you are aware, <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to work everything together for good. And all you get to know is the next step. I'll give you the next step but I'm not giving you anything else. Not right now, because you're not ready. You couldn't, you don't, you just need the next step. I don't know about you, but I always live seven steps ahead. What are you worried about today? No, 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 today's okay. But tomorrow, whoa. Next month, next year, five years, that's, that's troublesome. Well, I'll tell you what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to tell you what to do today. And I want you to sit there. And I want you to know (laughs) that I am interceding for you. I'm working all things together for good. And I want you to rest in that. And when your thoughts tell you something else, I want you to take those ingredients out of your soup. And I want to put these ingredients in your soup. I'm on it. You can trust me. I'm on it. Divine guidance is short term. Number five. Everybody doing okay? Man, we have blown through four of these. Practically finished. (laughs) Number five, divine compassion is unlimited. So he shows up, and Martha, Mary comes to meet him. Martha comes to meet him, and she says, if only you'd been here. How many times have we said, if only, if only. I wish, if only, I regret. And Jesus says, hey, I am the resurrection and the life. You know, I know someday it'll all, and she said, I know someday, I know someday it'll all work out. Well, it's better than that. It's way better than 
than that. I, I want you to sit in space and I want you to think about the fact that divine compassion is unlimited. It doesn't matter what happened yesterday. It doesn't matter where we are in the circumstance. It doesn't matter that our attitude and our spirit says it's too late. It's all over. It doesn't matter now. Because the compassion of God is unlimited. It doesn't matter if it's in the past. It doesn't matter if it's in the future. I, I want you to understand that it's unlimited. It reaches into the present moment, but it reaches back into the past to, to heal and cultivate and correct and, and, and make things whole that were broken. But it reaches into the future too. So sitting in this space and saying, if only and it's too late is not a way that we think. It's, it's what gets in our soup, but his compassion is unlimited. It's unlimited. And it's not too late. It's not too late. It's never too late. And that's what Jesus is saying to her. It's never too late. <laughs> well, what kind of attitude is that? <laughs> if only you'd been here. You think that's the limiting factor? You think the fact that I was up north and not down south, that's, that's what caused the whole turning of the world? I don't think so. But we do that. We say that in our brains, in our hearts, and in our minds. Number six, divine hope is future-oriented. First thing he says to Martha is, look ahead. Look ahead. Some of us need to look ahead. We need to look ahead. This unlimited divine compassion says that, that I'm, I'm going to take care of it. It's all going to come together. But you, have you seen the condition of the world? Yeah. 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 Isn't it interesting that, you know, for a lot of us, we're like, boy, we are living in the most stressful times ever on the face of the planet. We are aware, of course, that every generation has always felt that way. I mean, Paul in the first century is writing, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. This reality that, that, that we're supposed to look forward. And I don't know about you, but when you've been through some stuff and you've had some blows and you've gotten hit and you've gotten knocked down, then we get less resilient and we're pretty sure that the future becomes frightening instead of hopeful. Amen? Somewhere in our thought soup, we've got to go, that's not how this works. In all things, I work for the good. I am redeeming the world. What does the book of Revelation mean? It means God wins. I don't have to explain how. I don't have to figure it all out. I just know God wins and he's taken me with him. Which is what Paul was talking about. Because we carry around the death and resurrection of our life. And even though we live, we die. And we're all like, what is he talking about? He's talking about this. God wins. That's what he's talking about. I know you're having a hard time, but God wins. And you carry around that power in you. And you are called to be a comforter to the people with whom you are sharing this life. And the comfort's got to get in if it's going to get out. And finally, number seven, divine love is incarnate. So with all of this going on, Jesus now goes to the graveside. And his response in this moment is that he weeps. It's a very important piece of the story. Because God is with us. He's not a puppeteer up there manipulating our lives and our circumstances. He's down here with us. And when we weep, He weeps. When we hurt, He hurts. When He longs, we long. We, we are together in this. He is navigating all of it with us, right beside us. And He is feeling the full extent of the pain. 
I know we don't have that in our thought soup. I know even when we read the story of the Bible and he's the son of God and here he is and he's suffering and he's on the cross and we're kind of like, yeah, wink, wink. That's not real suffering. He's, he's really not hurting. He really knows that he's okay and God's helping. That's not the story. He feels what we feel. He, he, he anguishes as we anguish. He he weeps at the deepest level. In fact, this little tiny verse, the shortest verse in the Bible, by the way, you know, John 11, 36. Jesus wept. You can all now, you've memorized a verse. Congratulations. If it was vacation Bible school, you'd get a bracelet. <laughs> this verse in the Greek, it's a participle word. And this is what it means. You ever been around a, an animal, a big animal, a horse, specifically a horse, and they make that guttural noise inside? <laughs> you, know, you don't even really hear it. You just feel it. You're like, <laughs> what was that? This word is that phrase that means the breaking apart of the insides that comes from deep within, and it's hardly even a sound. It's just a breaking apart of things that are inside. That's the word. Jesus wept. Jesus at his deepest guttural level of human emotion, broke apart inside at the loss of his friend and at the pain of Mary and Martha. And he weeps with you. And he enters into the questions and he enters into the pain and he doesn't hold himself back from it. It's got to be in your thought soup. Why is this happening to me? Listen, he's right there with you. His timing is not your timing. His timing is not your timing. He intercedes, and it's real. In a very personal way, he intercedes for you, for your children, for your story, for your life. He's taking care of everything all the time, all at once. And he enters in. And finally now, I said finally on seven, but that was a lie. Finally on eight. <laughs> I try not to lie in church. but <laughs> Number eight, divine providence is healing. Divine providence is healing. What Paul was talking about to the Corinthian church and what Jesus was doing in this moment is saying this. In the end, it will all be healed. Put it in your thought soup. What was he doing those two days? He was interceding to the Father on behalf of Lazarus. He was working out what was going on. But it wasn't just about Lazarus. There is deep, deep foreshadowing. Can you see it? Do you hear the language? Do you hear the circumstances? He's not just interceding for Lazarus. He's facing his own death. He's going to Jerusalem and there is a tomb. And in the face of the tomb, there is a stone that has been rolled into place. And he's interceding to the Father. And he's not just praying for Lazarus. He's praying for the will of the Father that is personal and deep to him. Because in a very short amount of time, he's going to be inside that tomb instead of outside that tomb. And the father has said to him, I'm going to take care and I'm going to heal that man, Lazarus. And Jesus walks that journey and he stands in front of that grave and he weeps. And he says, roll the stone away. And they say to him, it's going to stink. There's going to be an odor. There is going to be an odor of death. And he says, roll it away anyway. And when the stone moves, 
and there is no smell of death, Jesus knows that God has answered prayer. Not just for Lazarus, but for him and for every story. And he knows in this moment that there's still some more pain to get through. There's still a journey to walk. There's still hard things that are going to happen. But it's going to be okay. There's no smell. There's no death. And now there's just one more little thing left to do. God, I ask you, and I'm doing this for their benefit, because as soon as that stone moved and there was no smell, I knew you had answered the prayer. I already knew that what we talked about in those two days of intercession was done. I already knew, but that was the moment. That was the proof. And now, now that they know what I know, Lazarus, come out. It's a testimony to you. It's a testimony to me. God's going to heal it all. He's going to heal every single bit of it. In His grace and in His mercy and in His walk, He's going to heal your story and my story and my life and wherever we go and however we fail and whatever we run into and whatever we sinned and messed up and chose, He's going to heal it. And all we have to ever do is ask. And we ought to have it in our thought soup. And that's what Paul was talking about. We carry around the death of Jesus so that we might carry around the life of Jesus. Because he stood in front of that grave and he said, death doesn't win. And death represents every loss there can possibly be. And I'm going to heal that. And I'm going to heal you. And I'm going to heal your story. I am not playing games with you. Not with your life and not with your circumstances and not with your friends and not with your family. I am in all things working for your good. God, as we close and we sing this closing song about your goodness, we don't just want to sing it, we want to proclaim it. And there's people in this room and there's people online right now and they need to do more than just sing it. They need to say to some circumstances and to some thought soup, I'm going to think different. I'm going to invite you to clean out some stuff in my brain that has been swirling around and it's sludgy and dark and unpleasant and no matter where I go, there I am. And I'm going to sing a new song. I don't want any smell of death around my brain. I don't want any smell of death in my soup. It just is off-putting and unappetizing. I not only want in these moments to receive the healing and hope and comfort of your Holy Spirit, I, I want to be able to share it thank you God thank you for loving us like that thank you for working like that and now I pray God that you would do your work in hearts and lives represented here online through the course of this week will you please in these moments hear our response and may each of us in a very personal way do some business with you in these closing moments we pray it in Jesus name and everybody said together, amen. Will you stand as we respond? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.